Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So Paul here describes himself as a servant, and that word servant is the Greek word doulos. Well, the word doulos means more than a servant, it's a slave. So a slave was not uncommon. There were a multitude of slaves in the Roman Empire, and Paul here calls himself a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle means one who is sent out. Titus knew very well that Paul was a doulos and an apostolos, or an apostle, but Paul addresses Titus in this letter this way because he knew this letter would be circulated among the churches. And since this letter instructs leadership criteria, it's important that Paul remind the leaders of his authority as an apostle of Jesus to oversee and instruct the church. So even though we refer to him as the Apostle Paul, it would probably be more favorable in Paul's own eyes to call him the doulos Paul or the servant Paul. He knew his calling and he was faithful to that calling. Every spirit-filled believer has a calling in the kingdom of God for the work of the ministry. In Ephesians 4.11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd and teachers. And shepherd and teachers should be kind of like shepherd slash teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So everybody has a role in the body of Christ. Everybody has something to do to build up the body of Christ. It's up to each individual to seek that calling on their own life. And like worker bees who do their part in the hive for the building up of the hive so the colony can do what it is designed to do and bless the area around it by pollinating everything it can, so too the church is supposed to be a light and shine the truth around this world. Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, and salt is a preservative. You put it on meat in these days and the meat wouldn't rot, and that's the church's role is to be a preservative, it's to bless society. And Paul continues in verse 1, he says, for the sake of the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. There's a lot of discussion on the elect in Christian circles, who they are. I like to keep it simple. I believe the elect is speaking of those true children of God who have, by faith, entered into that relationship with him. These are the few in Matthew chapter 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few, and I believe those few are the elect. We'll see when we get there. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with the heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The hope that a believer has in this life is that when we cross the threshold from mortality to immortality, there's a life awaiting us that will be free from the wickedness in this life. It's a hope that while some mock the idea of eternal life and categorize the gospel as just another religion, this hope is a knowable hope, knowing that God brings about an awareness of the supernatural, and knowing the supernatural God reinforces his word and makes our hope even more sure because the supernatural God does not lie and he is in us. So that hope is not something that we just hope for with no real substance. There's a reason we have our hope. It's because God is in us. We know it's real. Second Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began, God had this plan all lined out, and he knew us. 
And he created us with that foreknowledge, knowing exactly what would happen in this year, in this day, right now. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going to happen in the next minute or so. Not to mention, for eternity, God has that knowledge. Verse 3, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. In Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, he fulfilled Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, as he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He was not surprising the world, rather fulfilling what was written about him, the king of Israel from the Old Testament prophets, who wrote about him specifically. Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, or Messiah, Mashiach is the word Messiah, or Christ, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with the squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So there's a prophecy, the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. And when you break it down, it involves three periods of time. And at the conclusion of the second period of time, that's when Messiah was going to come and be cut off. In Daniel 9.26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, or a Mashiach, a Messiah, or a Christ in the Greek, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So Christ will be executed by the people who shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And we know those people, they were the Romans. And it happened, just like Daniel said, several centuries before Christ. Now, there are numerous Old Testament prophecies, types, and pictures of Jesus in his first coming that have been remarkably fulfilled. But there are also many more prophecies about his second coming and setting up his physical kingdom, which is still yet to come. And Jesus commanded Paul in Acts chapter 9 to preach the gospel in 9.15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul was faithful, and he suffered, but he kept on with his calling. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul mentions Titus several times in his second letter to the believers in the church of Corinth, and here he describes Titus as, quote, my true child in the common faith, unquote. I don't think Paul gave accolades like this lightly. It appears Titus was loved by Paul as a true brother in the faith. And what's interesting is that Titus is not even mentioned in the book of Acts. It says grace and peace. Grace is getting something good we don't deserve, and that's the gospel. Receiving the gospel from God brings peace, and no doubt Titus had received this grace and peace. So Paul finishes his introduction, and you can read Paul's additional letters in the New Testament. You can see that he always has this type of introduction. Verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town I directed you. Paul is now going to lay out instructions for Titus, as Titus now has been commissioned to oversee these churches, or at least to appoint elders in these churches. When the gospel is preached, and there are those who accept it, there's a lot more work to do. Simply moving on and leaving these people stranded, basically, will certainly mean that the life brought about by the power of the word received by the new believers will certainly fall victim to the devil's attack to destroy it. You read Matthew chapter 13. The whole chapter is about kingdom parables and the devil's tactics to destroy what God is doing. 
For example, in Matthew 13, 19, it says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So these are the types of parables that Jesus spoke of there. The devil is always all over new believers, and the Holy Spirit's there too. But how many people become believers and then all of a sudden something happens and they're right back into the world again? They abandon their faith. The devil's a part of that. Their flesh is a part of it too, but the devil's all over it. He targets anybody that even mentions the name Jesus. So Paul understands ministry and the need for a team of like-minded, faithful men to keep things in check. So his first order of business for Titus was to appoint elders in every town. And now he's going to remind him of his instructions and define crucial characteristics for these elders. you got to have the right people leading. We know very well from multiple examples of having the wrong people in church leadership how devastating that can be. It is crucial that we have the right people in leadership and that we take care of them. We submit to them as is fitting to the Lord, and we pray for them continually. We want our church leaders to be squared away. And our church uses this criteria. And if someone falls short, we're not going to appoint them to a position of leadership. There's no way. And if they're prone to having stupid attacks while they're in leadership, they're gone. It's vital for a church to have these leaders that can be trusted. But if we, like some churches do, allow our leaders to live in sin, we not only shut the door on Jesus' presence in that church, we also stumble a lot of people. And Jesus didn't take kindly to stumbling people, especially new believers. He said it would be better to tie a large rock around their neck and throw them into the sea. And that's Jesus talking. And a good example of a church that didn't take him serious is the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And this is written to a church, not a person, although I think it's still very applicable for anyone personally. You know, if he's knocking on your door, you need to open the door and let him come in, that kind of thing. But the church as a whole wasn't interested in following Jesus, and he finds himself outside the church knocking on the door. He's not breaking it in, he's knocking. And the impression is that nobody's really interested in opening it. And the Laodiceans, they liked their church the way it was. It's interesting history on that church. Study that. There's a lot of information on them, and they just wanted to do things their way. They didn't want Jesus there, and that's why Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's what he says to the church at Laodicea. I think that's kind of interesting. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Above reproach, or in other translations, blameless. The idea is that you are not guilty of anything illegal, and you are not even accused of doing anything illegal. Colossians 1.21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So a church leader must be a believer who has been cleansed of their sin. There is no way a church leader should be in a position of church leadership if they're not filled with the Holy Spirit and they don't identify with Colossians 1.22, that I've been reconciled so that God may present me holy and blameless. It's not me, it's Christ in me. Now we can see that through Christ's sacrifice, we now and only now can stand before God above reproach. So I wonder what Titus is feeling when he's reading this, because he's in the island of Crete, which was known for being a wild place, and the people were known for being pretty rebellious. I got to find men in this morally depraved society who possess these qualities. That's not an easy task. But God doesn't leave us hanging. He will identify them for Titus and for us too. Otherwise, we leave the position vacant. Better to have a vacant position than the wrong person in that position. You don't want a wolf among the sheep. Having one wife, it says. Polygamy was a problem in this day. And we know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So there's no room for an additional wife. And this doesn't mean an elder must be married, by the way. The leader's kids must be believers. For a leader to have believing kids, they must know the truth of the gospel. So who gets the responsibility of teaching them? Yep, that's dad and mom, but primarily dad. If they're to believe what dad teaches, then dad must model what he's teaching. How many children of church leaders look at their parents and describe them as drunkards, adulterers, violent, hateful, etc.? Way too many. Why? Because dad's actions were inconsistent with his preaching. He was not above reproach. He was not filled with the spirit. He was worldly. I recall years ago when I was a new believer, I was listening to a Christian radio program, and they were talking about this topic. And while I don't recall the details of the preacher's home life, I recall that after his funeral, his sons went to the cemetery and urinated on his grave. And that kind of tells you the story. And I've watched over the years, many church leaders lose their children to the world big time. And some of them were godly parents, but others, they had a different home life. It was a mess. And the kids jumped ship as soon as they could. It's hard to watch people who've served in ministry for years lose their kids. And some of them lost their kids just right to the devil, man. They went head first into darkness. Others just kind of walked away from the church, and they're doing okay in a worldly sense. I watched a pastor and his wife from another church share their struggles with their children, all of which now have nothing to do with them. And they shared their story, and they totally, in front of a congregation, streaming live, they disqualified themselves as church leaders. Their kids hated them. And these two are in a place of leadership at a church. And they don't qualify as church leaders according to the criteria laid out in Scripture. And it doesn't matter how nice they are, how popular they are. They're disqualified because they obviously did something very wrong in their family so that all their kids basically disowned them. That's not an uncommon thing in the church. And God takes this stuff seriously, and so should we. So many churches totally ignore these qualifications because they have to. The only church leaders they can get don't qualify. It's like, well, you know, times are tough. It's hard to find a good church leader. You're going to let someone in here that doesn't have these qualities, that's disqualified? It's one thing not to possess some qualities. It's another thing to be disqualified by your life. But man, you cannot go wrong by sticking to the Word of God. Verse 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So there's a couple words here. There's the word elder and there's the word overseer. Elder is the word presbyteros. You've heard of the Presbyterian church. It comes from this word. This word elder, it means that two guys are hanging out and one is older than the other. He is the presbyteros, the older of the two. So it just means older man. The Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, they were made up of men who were older, presumably for their life experience and wisdom gained from that experience, and they were called elders. The other word, overseer, episkopos, that's where the Episcopalians get their name from. This is a person who is in authority. It's not limited to religion. It's a, it was a secular word. You could be a construction superintendent overseeing the project. You're the boss, and you would be referred to as the episkopos. So there are different words used of positions in the church, and sometimes they're used interchangeably, but we need to understand that each position had these criteria to occupy that position. Drunkenness is a violation of that criteria. So an overseer having a beer is not a disqualifier. It may be a stumbling block to others in the church who are struggling with alcoholism, but not necessarily a disqualifier. But being a drunk is, and being violent is. Obviously, that speaks for itself, but that can also involve violent preaching. Don't represent Jesus by promoting violence. 
and greedy for gain. Now take this qualification to a pastor of a church always preaching about money so the pastor can have a life of prosperity. I have heard story after story from just people that I know that have been to different churches, how the emphasis is always on money, and they even blatantly say that they want to buy the pastor a new whatever, and the church is responsible for buying the pastor a new whatever. And it's like, that's wrong, man. That's greedy for gain. Church leaders cannot be greedy. you got a greedy church leader, that's a bad thing. Verse 8, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So the prohibitions are now dealt with. So let's now look at what a pastor should exhibit. Hospitality, or simply being hospitable. Having a kindness demonstrated when speaking with strangers and friends and guests. A lover of good, loving the good things in life, being a person showing that love of good things and good people. Self-controlled or sound mind, upright or just, equitable or innocent, holy or pure of heart. In Matthew 5 eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Don't we want our church leaders to have that relationship where they're seeing God? And not seeing God necessarily visibly, obviously, yet. But you want your leaders to be people who are connected with God, speaking the truth. And it says disciplined. And it's like self-control, but just adding strength to that self-control. Verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. When the church was born and the Spirit was moving through the apostles and disciples, they all gathered together to strengthen one another. And in these gatherings, there were four identified things they did to make the church strong. In Acts 2.42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's basically the New Testament that we have, and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Those four things became fundamental in the early church and united the believers in faith. And they're still crucial for any church to stay strong and also the individual believers. Those four things are vital. We stay in the Word, we stay in fellowship, we stay breaking in bread, hanging out with people and communion, and we stay in prayer with others. we got to be people of prayer. If you do those four things, you're going to grow, and that's what the church did. So Paul is reiterating the crucial qualification of anyone in a position of spiritual oversight that they must take the Word of God serious so that they may offer good instruction and correct those who contradict the Word. In Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God is the words our God compiled so that we may know Him know his character, know ourselves, know our faults, and not be deceived by teachers who ignore the word, like many church leaders today who some of them don't even refer to the Bible. And their people are deceived, and they're not growing in grace. I knew this one when I first started going to church. My minister did not teach the Bible. And when I started going to a Bible teaching church wondering if this Christian thing was real or not, all of a sudden he began to teach the word. I began to listen, and I began to read, and oh my gosh, my whole life changed. But those ministers who stand before people in the name of Jesus, quote-unquote, they are frauds. They are withholding the Word of God. And those people that are in those churches that are listening to this day after day and their growth is stunted, they're just not getting it. And some may like this. Some may like the nice, warm, fuzzy, I don't want to hear about sin and repentance. You know, well, hearing about sin and repentance, it draws us into that place where we repent of our sins. Now things start to open up. This is where the peace, the love, all that kind of stuff, it's right there. But to take out the sin and repentance and all that negativity is to basically deprive them of the reality of the good stuff. But if you want the real experience with God, if you want eternal life, you delve into the Word. 
and you trust the Lord. You fall on your face before him, and you'll see your relationship grow. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So Paul commissioned Titus to establish leaders in the churches on the island of Crete. And like we already said, those people didn't have a good reputation. They were known to be wild and lazy, and as we'll see here, many were insubordinate. In other words, they did what they wanted to do. I don't care about obeying anybody in authority. And with that comes arrogance and ignorance. You put the two together, and you have people who were really irritating. And Paul adds that the circumcision party, or the Jews, was at the top of the list. Verse 11, they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So they were using their teaching that they had received, twisting them and using their quote-unquote knowledge of God as a way to gain something. And as a note, the first heretical group in heresy, and the word heresy implies a division, dividing. A heretic is someone who divides. The first heretical group to hit the church were the Judaizers who taught the Gentiles that in order to be a Christian, you need to become a Jew first, which the church condemned in Acts chapter 15. But they didn't care. They went along with it anyway because they had an understanding of the scriptures. They had an understanding of the law, the prophets, Moses, all this kind of stuff. They knew lots of stuff. And the Gentiles, they really didn't know. They weren't really thrust into that life. I mean, they may have known some Jewish people, but they didn't have a knowledge of that. So these Judaizers were taking their influence and their spiritual knowledge, and they were twisting it, telling the Gentiles, you can't be a Christian unless you come in and you become Jewish. You got to do all this stuff, including being circumcised. And that's why Paul refers to them as the circumcision party. You got to be circumcised. And Acts 15 is like, no, you don't. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. And so Paul, being familiar with the world outside of the Jewish community, uses a quote from a man from Crete, a Cretan, who criticizes his own people for being liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul says, this guy's speaking the truth. And he adds that because these people on Crete are so jacked up, they need to be sharply rebuked or abruptly rebuked so that they may become sound in the faith. You got to correct their words abruptly, Paul's saying so they can get on the right track. Notice there's love there. It's not you just got to come up and punk them out. You got to lead them into a place where they are now understanding the truth. This is why it's so important to us not only to know the Word of God, but to know God Himself and have His Spirit in us so that when we're walking in faith, it's the Spirit who speaks through us. Because with the best intentions, we can say something that's wrong and lead someone astray. When the Holy Spirit speaks through us to someone who's off the rails, they can receive the truth, not an opinion or a quote from your pastor or somebody. It's the truth coming from the Holy Spirit. You may not even realize what you're saying. I've had that happen a couple of times where I had a conversation with someone and they were blown away and I'm like, what's wrong? And they're like, the Lord just spoke to me through you. And I'm like, what? What did he say? The Holy Spirit was speaking through me, words I didn't even realize he was using to minister to this guy. So learn the word and walk in the Spirit. Verse 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So again, here are those of the circumcision party teaching the law of Moses. And in Acts 15, I think it's important to hit this. Verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That yoke was the law of Moses, which they put so much trust in. 
They never got the law right. The law was meant to identify our sin, our need for God. It was never meant to give bragging rights to people who observe the law perfectly. It was given as instruction because we are so messed up. And Peter's like, look, our fathers didn't even get this right. Now we're going to tell other people, Gentiles, that they have to try to do this? Doesn't work. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So these new believers were being filled with the Spirit and wanting more. They were like innocent children, trusting their parents to teach them the truth, but they were being deceived by those who were defiled in their hearts and trying to defile the new believers. Verse 16, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's what Paul thought about these people that tried to deceive the new believers. These defilers profess to know God. Then Paul tells us what he thinks of the people who, in the name of God, do the work of the devil, detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So chapter 1 ends with smoke coming out of Paul's ears. You can just picture it. He had a hatred for those who would contaminate the pure gospel with unnecessary rules and deceive people. And he should know he was one of them. He was guilty of this very thing before Jesus set him straight. Remember Paul's history. In his righteousness, he was killing people. These innocent believers who he is now defending, he once was a brutal persecutor of these innocent people. Now he's a herald for the truth of God. Thank you.